The Incomparable Podcast, number 82, March 2012. Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us because, quite frankly, we're all quite depressed because we read lots of books about the end of the world. I am your host, Jason Snell. This is a new edition of our book club, and our primary book club selection today is a short story collection by Maureen McHugh called After the Apocalypse. Uh, it's a collection of, looks like, nine maybe short stories that generally involve horrible things happening to the world and society. Ten, ten short stories, Ten short I stories, nice even ten, involving miserable things happening to miserable people. And then to throw in other things, we'll talk about other kind of apocalyptic, end-of-the-world kind of uh, literature as we go. Uh, joining me on this most uh, up-with-people of podcasts... <laughs> Uh, Lisa Schmeiser. Hi, Lisa. Hi there. Also, Scott McNulty. Hi, Scott. Hello. Is the world still there where you are? Uh, well, I, I, who knows? Philadelphia, you can never tell. That's pretty much the end of the world anyway. And John Syracuse. Hi, John. I find the end of the world exhilarating. Maybe I'm the only one. Ah. That's because you hate everything. I don't know. Maybe that could be it. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> That's one possible scenario. So I can't even remember who recommended this book because I'm going to... Yeah, who recommended this? Was it Lisa? Should we blame Lisa or is it Scott? Who? who? See, it's already... I, society, I blame Scott. Society's already deteriorated. Yeah, society's already crumbling. <laughs> yes. We're turning on each other. That's the message in all of these. You're all alone. No one likes you. <laughs> and you're going to die. Uh, it, it may have been me. <laughs> all right. Oh, because I seconded it with um, oh, Lincoln, that's right. with Lincoln Train, because um, I had first heard of Maureen McHugh through an anthology. I've got one of the Mike Resnick um, edited anthologies called Alternate Tyrants, and the story that caps off that anthology is called Lincoln Train by Maureen McHugh. And without giving anything away in the story, it the premise is that Lincoln survived the assassination, but there are a group of people who are basically acting as president in his stead. Since obviously you don't just bounce back from a bullet to the brain. And one of their bright ideas is to round up what they call recalcitrant Southerners and then pack them on trains and send them out to encampments in Indian country. And the story Lincoln Train is about the experience of one so-called recalcitrant Southerner who can't understand why this is happening to her. And it goes over the events of, of, of what happens when the people who used to be your countrymen and were your enemy combatants have the upper hand in, in, in a bad situation. So anyway, that has nothing to do with this book. You know, it's it's it's. This it sounds terrible. It's kind of an upbeat story for her. Yeah, I was oh. going to say it sounds. <laughs> she's a downer. She's a little bit of a little bit of a downer. The, I mean, well, granted, this is, this is after the apocalypse, the short story collection. This is sort of the theme, and and I think mm-hmm. that the, the they were the stories were chosen. I assume that not every story she writes is about the end of the world, and not all of these stories are really about the end of the world, but they are all. You know, let's see, let's let's take After it off. After we picked this selection, I went back and read her first collection, which is Mothers and Other Monsters. And <laughs> what did you people do to us? <laughs> Everybody laughs ner- nervously. And and this is just I, I think one of the big themes in her work is is we are all selfish, we are all alone, we will never have true understanding or connection with another human being. And like as long as you understand that going into her stories, there's a lot to appreciate. Just don't ever read them when you're in a bad mood or despairing over the state of humanity. <laughs> Enjoy. Everybody have a good time. With yeah. Uh-huh. Now that Try it's, the real. Yeah. 
And I will say, I recommend, I, I got this book because I'm always fascinated when, uh, genre books kind of cross over into mainstream and people are talking, like, people who don't normally talk about genre books are talking about it. And after the apocalypse was one of these things that, like, you know, the New York Times book review, people were writing about it and so it intrigued me. Yeah. Uh, and so there you go. That's why. Funny how that I, didn't happen with, let's say, I don't know, Harry Potter. A genre uh-huh. book crossing over into the mainstream should repel you. It should that's serve too, as a warning. That's too popular. <laughs> exactly. That's that's the wrong kind of mainstream. Genre. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so so in this book we have uh, we have a, we have a zombie apocalypse. We have a. I love that story, by the way. We have a. I'm gonna, let me run them down here. We have a zombie apocalypse. We have an unstated economic apocalypse. We have a dirty bomb apocalypse. We have an artificial intelligence, not really an apocalypse, but an emergence. We have a medical experiment gone awry, but not really an apocalypse. We have a chicken nugget apocalypse. We have an unstated apocalypse. And then there are some people who fly. Right? That's basically yes. what we've got here. Yes. I'm not quite sure yes. what the flying people have to do with anything. Are they in an apocalypse? There are flying people? Well, well I wonder if it comes down to it's the breakdown of, of emotional equilibrium and reality. Yeah. Because I, I think the theme that goes through all of these books is these every, every single one of them is about people who have survived an event that has completely altered their worldview and, and their frame of reference. Because in um, The Effect of Centrifugal Forces, which is about the prion disease that that's passed on through the chicken mcnuggets there she really doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the most horrific aspect of the story which is that anybody who's ever eaten a chicken mcnugget could get this disease and for me i thought that the 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 worst part of the story was you had this poor 14 year old kid who is losing her mother and she has nobody and she she literally feels like the best thing she can possibly do in her life is set fire to her house which she does yeah yeah (laughs) right she's what is she she's Mm -hmm. she's got her her um, two moms and they've split up and mm-hmm. her uh, one mom who's not her biological mom, who she calls her moms, yes. is is a is a junkie with a new mm-hmm. boyfriend who's kind of shifty. And then her mom, who's stable, has Alice as her new partner. And but her mom ha- has the chicken nugget disease and is dying. And and, and, and Alice uh, is a hoarder. Exactly. And Alice is a hoarder. Yes. 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 <laughs> Don't forget that. Yeah, just to throw that in there. There's also hoarding. There's chicken nugget <laughs> yeah. apocalypse and hoarding. Exactly. Well, I think because yeah. she wants every all, she wants the main character to be as uncomfortable as possible. So you can't even. There's no like home is not your sanctuary because a your mother's dying and b it's full of somebody's other crap and you can't get mm-hmm. comfortable. Well, and Alice yeah. Alice is being very supportive of her mother, but Alice doesn't provide because she's a hoarder. I mean, the the, the home is no longer really a, a comfort for her. And then her mm-hmm. other her other mom is not really much of an option either. It's really kind of a miserable story on yeah. the on the personal you've got that nice coupling of personal misery with complete societal misery because because yeah. there's a fatalism, right? That, that what mm-hmm. what um everyone her, is eating chicken McNuggets. You don't know well, when the disease that, is going to hit cuz it takes it. 5 years to incubate. Her junkie mom's boyfriend basically says we could you know, we could all be dead but there's no way to know until we get symptoms and there's no test. And so er, the mm-hmm. whole society is degrading mostly out of fatalism. Right, because yeah. you mm-hmm. everybody could be dying. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. that's fun. They should get but Irene so, so, and Irene and Franny yeah. should get together and perhaps participate in some sort of competition in which they have to kill each other in the woods. That's horrifying. <laughs> it's the Hunger Games. <laughs> but yeah, no. If, for example, in that story, the apocalypse isn't about the 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 the, the prion disease because that's just a fact of life. Like um, 
radiation poisoning or anything else that can kill you. The apocalypse is this woman's mother, this, this young girl's mother dying and her literally having nobody who's willing to step up and take care of her. And, and I, I thought that was something that McHugh does in a lot of the stories is the, the so-called apocalypse isn't necessarily the precipitating event, like the bird flu in special economics. What it is, is the event that causes somebody to say, okay, life as I know it is over. Here's what comes next. Um, you know, in special economics, it's the it's the main character's realization that she's effectively sold herself into wage slavery for a bio, for for a biotech factory. Um, in the Kingdom of the Blind, it's when she realizes that um, she's dealing with a with a sentient AI, and standing up for that AI is going to end her career as an IT troubleshooter. Uh, you know, things like that. The, the these so called catastrophic events are. Are, are basically background noise in most of these stories. Right. They're all personal apocalypses. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I thought it was kind of weird that you let off with the naturalist because... Uh, Zombies. Well, the, okay. So so here, here's what I'm struggling to say. Is Zombie the prison camp. Zombie is, prison camp. Oh, it's yeah. Because what the lead character effectively does is he gets curious enough about zombies to start waylaying his federal prisoners and using them as lab rats in his experiments. But... You read this and you kind of see this spirit of 19th century naturalist in it. You know, he's almost like an Audubon of the zombie world. And so I was I was trying to figure out where his apocalyptic moment came from. And I guess basically he, he doesn't have one. You know, he's he's already living in it. Because no, he, he's the master of the, the zombie, you know, uh, federal prison, right? And then they close them. And that's his apocalypse is leaving the zombie reservation and going back to with regular people. And so now his all his skills are meaningless because he had because he was building up quite a little you know mutual of Omaha presents um, portfolio on, on the behavior of zombies. Yeah, the main um, character in the Naturalist he he has that turn where he um, where he begins to set out to study the zombies, and there's that moment where he realizes I'm going to kill my fellow prisoners or mm -hmm. or d disable them and let the zombies kill them in order to yeah. learn more about them for science yes which is yeah which is that which you know it is a prison he's a mm -hmm. criminal in a prison right so it's like oh, i guess you know that so that and right. it was pretty evident that these guys are all killing each other in different ways anyway right um, you know they, they set that up in the beginning and so you have that whole backdrop of of, yeah. of that that the um society has has degraded to the point because of the zombie apocalypse that they've just said cleveland put yeah. just zombie prisoners in there throw cleveland it in there. is a zombie preserve and then for some reason they started throwing in prisoners into the preserve um then she never makes that reason clear and then there's like this throwaway line at the end of the story about how the supreme court has ruled that unconstitutional a president's been impeached and if I may be frank, that was actually the part I found the most unrealistic because, <laughs> well, seriously, like when have you known anybody in Washington to take any accountability for any gross violation of human rights by the federal government? Well, after the zombie apocalypse, Lisa, That's then true. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a, a new age of personal responsibility. There's a zombie lobby. You Things know there gonna is. There's going to be a zombie lobby where they probably have like zombie junkets where you can go shoot zombies and Dick Cheney shoots one in the face. I, I mean, that's that's where we're going with this. I did like in in The Naturalist, I like I like the idea that that um, 
that seemed realistic to me. I guess this is what you were saying that that mm-hmm. society would would um, react to something like a zombie apocalypse in that way of saying, "Well, you know, we are going to just toss the criminals in with the zombies because we don't we don't care, right?" I mean, yeah. they might as well be zombies or zombie food because they're 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 criminals, and and so we're just going to throw them away. It solves two problems at once, right? Right, and yeah. yet within mm-hmm. that, then there there is as there are in our prisons today, there is this kind of culture that grows up. There's a guy who's kind of like the leader, but then this guy breaks away and goes out into the city and begins his studies and and begins um capturing prisoners and and using them in his in his zombie studies did you think he was actually interested in science Uh, i think he was interested in survival i think he was curious about what about what the rules of the zombies were i guess i'd put it that way because once he saw that zombie in the tinfoil lined dumpster he was like what is the deal with it what is the deal with the tin actually that would that was a brilliant little moment right it's like why does the zombie have a like a little sun bowl that he lives in <laughs> when he wants to be warm and then he and he, he has that one moment where he's like on the fire escape and he realizes the zombies don't look up that mm-hmm. that he's curious right he's got some curiosity i'm not sure yeah that he was really doing doing it for science but i do think that he had some curiosity and then had no problem basically killing people yeah because that was the key trait that i saw in him was that he was nuts he was criminally insane but and the reader is interested in the zombies but he's he's a survivor and he's like huh like you know the same way you might be like i wonder what kind of bird that is he's thinking that while he's sacrificing like this guy that he's tricked into you know killing him he was pretty nonchalant (laughs) about well he's got this whole list of questions about how they behave and so part of it was i need to answer these questions so i know what i what i can do without getting myself killed by zombies but by the end of it, when he starts seeing the zombies rhythmically bobbing their heads after eating, and he notices that it's it's like a, a communication behavior, that's when I think something shifts in his brain. And that's why the story ends with him noting that he would have liked to have set one last fire for the zombies. It's him. I, I would like to find, like, his scientific curiosity does get sparked right at the point where he gets picked up. But he's going to be the world's foremost expert on zombies now, right? I mean, he'll be yeah. he'll be fam- he, he may have this personal apocalypse, Scott, but mm-hmm. he, he also get I got the sense that he he might be kind of famous, like a media because he gets yeah. he gets interviewed and, mm-hmm. and 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 the pictures of him as he's removed from the from the from Cleveland are are <laughs> are, uh, are all over the news and that you know and, and that struck me as kind of funny too that this guy yeah. who just killed all of these people and nobody knows or cares about it he's going to end up being uh hailed as a survivor and and maybe ultimately as somebody who's an expert on on how the zombies behave right, but i got the sense that he did not care for his fellow man since oh, you no. know he would kill them so <laughs> easily. easily uh but he, and he was really really <laughs> interested in the zombies so they took him away from the one thing he was interested in and I don't think it's going to end well for him. Oh, I don't know. Maybe he'll become like the David Attenborough of zombies, right? <laughs> he'll be like le- leading, you know, uh, expeditions into Cleveland. Or maybe That's what he'll true. do is he'll he'll redirect that energy into killing people for for another. Yeah, I think he's uh, just going to kill go people back to for prison. other reasons. Yeah. Well, he'll find another reason to do it. He'll you know he'll he'll find he'll frame another investigative question and, and go back to killing people in some way. So uh, we should talk a little bit about um, about useless things, which is another mm-hmm. story in this collection, which is about a sculptor, a woman in the Southwest who um, makes uh, these creepy uh, uh, living dolls. They're like newborn mm-hmm. newborn doll mm-hmm. replicas, and she makes makes them for people over the internet and and there's basically a gradual economic apocalypse that's happening that that 
comes up in a lot of her stories where where the gulf between the haves and the have-nots has just gotten so big that people are are, are falling off of the edge into the gulf. Yeah, well, clearly that's her that's yeah. her worldview and in, in, in a post uh, Great Recession kind of. Uh, environment that that would mm-hmm. seem to be a, a fairly straightforward reasonable uh, extrapolation to say that you know this is not going to get better it's going to keep getting worse people are mm-hmm. going to get pulled apart and it's going to be this gradual apocalypse which i find actually in some ways more realistic and, and and more terrifying than the kind of sudden apocalypse so it's like what if there suddenly were zombies or what if there was a horrible bomb that exploded and irradiated maryland and yeah. and, and much worse mm-hmm. to have it just be uh things just kept getting worse and and worse and worse until everybody you know lost their jobs and and waves you, ma- you majored in the wrong thing at college yeah you yeah. made you know your, your field went obsolete during your lifetime something like that which is horrifying but I this it was kind of a I found it kind of a bizarre story. I mean I, I liked I, I, something that happens in that story and also in um, a couple of the others. It, definitely one of her uh, one of McHugh's uh, motifs here is the American attitude that poor hungry people are from somewhere else. Yes, and there's there's an actual line in. One of these stories, I'm trying to remember which one. It might be after the apocalypse, where where they, somebody basically says, you know, we're Americans, you know, we're not, mm-hmm. we're not hung, hungry homeless refugees. Don't use the word refugee. But, no, that's in the la- yeah, that's in the last story yeah. when she meets up with the the convoy and she's mm-hmm. horrified by it. Yeah, and, and in in uh, in useless things, it's there's she makes a similar uh, observation about the uh, the the migrants who are coming by mm-hmm. and doing some you know doing some work in her garden before they move along. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's definitely that feeling that um, you know just because you've gotten comfortable being in a wealthy country doesn't make you any different as a person and any mm-hmm. more subject to, you know, terrible economic conditions than somebody who's in Africa or in, you know, in anywhere, any other poor part of the world. Mm-hmm. Plus, plus then she turns to making, um, sex toys. She has to turn to make <laughs> sex toys because she has well, to pay her property taxes. Gotta, yeah. Exactly. You got to make the money. Creepy, creepy, yeah. So so what there's a weird part in that story where it turns out that that um, she's making these living dolls for this couple and it turns out that it's just the guy who's using them and he's using them as like a pickup as a pickup line where I'm I'm grieving my dead child and presumably that that gets him a pity role and 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 on it goes from there. That's just so so strange. That whole that whole story. (laughs) So strange. It is a strange story. Well, I, I think what it also points out is is art is kind of a commodity of a stable society where where people feel comfortable spending money because no doubt the guy and and one of the things is the guy who ordered the dolls clearly doesn't appreciate the art and the effort that goes into them. And as an artist, you can't make a living when when the world is crumbling apart. You know, art art is one of the first casualties of of any apocalypse. That's right. Is so one you, of the you have to, to be saying. turn to other methods. Hmm. Right. That's got a nice. So it was just, yeah. That story's yeah, got I didn't a. I don't really care for that story. That story's got a ter- Well, it's got a scary mm-hmm. moment too, where she goes over to to get her dog. Her her dog's been found yeah. by a relatively nice guy, and his like son and his friends are coming out of the desert riding their 
their bikes or whatever it is, their 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 motorbikes, and he, he yeah, basically, it's like a Thunderdome moment. Yeah, and he basically <laughs> says, just don't even look at them, don't talk to them, just get in your truck and drive away. And you get the sense that yeah. although these older people are kind of trying to hold with having some sort of society, that uh, everybody mm-hmm. below a certain age pretty much is just completely lawless and scary and 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 dangerous and horrible. Oh yeah, there's a there's a line in that story actually. Um, where it's the parents of the girl who's pregnant. Um, I can't remember the Cheryl is her name, Cynthia, but um, they mentioned that the inside the house, it was like a flashback to 20 years ago because they have this working flat screen TV and it's air conditioned and the surfaces are all clean and the refrigerator is packed. And there's a line in there about how um, these people still regarded thoughtful liberalism as their birthright. And the narrator had two until she had realized it was her generation's burden to be born in interesting times. Um, and it was just a, it was just a really nice, really scathing throwaway. Oh, Sherry is the name of the woman. I'm, I'm looking it up now. Um, and, so. Oh, I thought this life of thought, here's the line. I thought this life of thoughtful liberalism was my birthright before I understood my generation was to be born in interesting times. And it points out that, like you said, you know, for older, it, it it could be seen almost as a veiled indictment of, of say the baby boomers who are you know certainly pretty comfortable with their paid for houses and the jobs that they refuse to retire from, while in younger generations you've got crazy high rates of unemployment and um, people are questioning the need to build families in traditional two parent family structures and and things like that. You know it's it's just this huge social gulf between older generations and younger generations thanks to the actions of one generation. And not necessarily the younger one, you know. So, um, so, John, what did you think of the um, the Kingdom of the Blind? You're a you're a technology guy and a computer guy and a programmer. That 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 was I thought interesting in that it was trying to portray not not so much the end of the world, but um, uh, an emergence of computer intelligence, which I thought was an interesting attempt to say it's not going to be like. You know, if there's an artificial intelligence that kind of emerges, it's not going to be like what you would think from a movie or a TV show. It's going to be weird and hard to understand and the people aren't going to really get it. Did that did that work for you or did it not work for you? The closer she got to trying to explain what was actually going on, the worse things got. So (laughs) she should not have tried to talk about subroutines <laughs> or the actual work that the programmers were doing or anything like that. The actual activities of the of the AI in terms of rolling the lights and taking data input, like in broad strokes, that's fine. Everything works and is an interesting idea. Yeah, I thought that was cool. That's like what's what the hell's going on? And it's only later that yeah. you get that. She that should picture. have got a consultant in there because there are systems where they're complicated enough that and have so many different inputs that it's difficult to, for someone to wrap their head around. But the way she described them is not really doesn't have any basis in anything. I, you know, it was like she got some like a COBOL programmer from 1962 to talk to her. And then like one time she wrote uh, a 10 print hello, 20 go to so, yeah, 10. I was going to say syntax <laughs> error in 30 and then the lights went out. And it's yeah. like, oh, it's the basic <laughs> program is alive. Yeah, but, but that's just because I'm a, computer I'm a computer nerd. I bet other other right. people probably would have thought it was too esoteric. So I think there was the seed of a good yeah. short story in there. I'm just glad that in that story, the female was not sexually menaced, which is a, a rarity for this for the short story collection. Now, I suppose there is menacing. <laughs> there is menacing yeah. throughout. Before we leave this behind, I wanted to to um, touch on the last story uh, before oh. we as a transition. But um, before we do that, is there something uh, any anything left that you uh, observations about this in general about this collection that that uh, 
that you guys would want to make. I, 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 it was fat. It was short. <laughs> I read it. I read it very fast. It was short. I, and, and some of the stories I thought, oh, that was really interesting because I like sci-fi short stories. And others I was like, huh? You know, so it was. Yeah, it was what about really the flying a people? For me. In the a flying way, people. The flying in people. In a way, she rem- we I took like them the on boats oh. and then they flew yeah. away because oh, they man. needed to get on a boat so that they were slightly closer to France. Yes. France. I, I, I like that story. Yeah, that was the one I, I connected with the least. I liked it so much because it makes absolutely no sense. It's so I, I, it, it does make some kind of sense depending <laughs> on what you assume the premise is. And, and so, it, it, explain, what, please. Well, I don't know. Well, what do you, what is, what are each of your takes on on that story? Is there something? Is there some sort of backstory that you can come up with that makes the story start to make some kind of sense? No, nothing. It's almost like a mental contagion. These people got some sort of mimetic virus. Is the only thing I can think of. It was it was like in a twenty four hour flu, only with a dumb idea. I, I figured it's like they're like super people. And the super people are going to go to France, mm-hmm. and then when yeah. you come in contact with the super people, you get kind you, you of like caught up into the the wanting to go to France and being with the super people. Like they rub off on you. Yeah, you would go to superheroes. Well, I guess that 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 probably well, yeah, does give some. Yeah, I know. As soon as you see flying people, you go right to. I I went to uh, yeah. of course the, the very ending of the thing where he's talking about uh, seeing somebody. Uh, someone running in front of an SUV or something and, and like time sort of stops and the running person had one foot off the ground, but his left foot wiggled back and forth on his ankle. It's like you, mm-hmm. he, they're all in a simulation and the simulation is paused, but it's glitching back and forth from, you know, frame 27, 28, 27, 28, that type of thing. So I, t- I saw it all as a virtual reality thing where they're all in a simulation and, and the simulation is breaking down Ooh. and everyone going to France I mean, the title, it's like a euphemism for something. Why do they all need to go to France? It's some some sort of virtual reality-based reasoning that makes sense within the game world, but everything's all messed up. And since they're... This is how what it would be like if you thought the game world was the real world and it was just getting all confused, you know? Sooner or later, we all go to France. Yeah, and the imagery at the end... People flying works in a virtual world, and the imagery at the end, it was, t- I, it was strangely described, but I think it was trying to get to that, you know, pause, jumping back and forth between frames kind of glitch. So... But I mean, I thought that was the most interesting of the stories. Also, yes, the, the holds together the least. But at least it let my at least it let me fill in something and decide what I think it right. is. Right. So um, overall, uh, overall, what's what's uh, what's your take on this collection, Scott? What do you think? Well, I, I'm it's your fault, by the way. It, it so. is my fault, and and I am okay with that because I enjoyed it. I thought they were they were very interesting <laughs> stories. Uh, the last story, of course. Incredibly depressing, um, but uh, overall, I thought oh, God, it was the worst. Yeah, that was that was not good, um, but in a good way. It was <laughs> it was it was uh, bittersweet, but not really sweet at all. So it was just bitter. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, where was the sweet in that again? <laughs> well, I don't like kids, so you know. Uh, I'm just kidding. <gasps> but I, overall, I enjoyed it. I thought it was well written, interesting. I like the fact that the apocalypse or the apocalypses weren't really the focus of the stories. They were just kind of, they set into motion other things. So it wasn't like, you know, oh, look, there are zombies and let's run away. But uh, that, you know, she was thinking about what would happen and, and kind of make them more personal. Oh, well, look, there's zombies. Let's kill other people and use them to test the zombies and no. learn about the zombies. Exactly. But there were only one, one zombie story, which was good. Right. That is a relief. Lisa, yeah. what about you? Mm-hmm. What would you think of the collection? 
well, depressing as hell, but um, yes. you know, well, my, well, my first take on it, um, I couldn't stop thinking about the stories and what I liked about them um, was how they were really well-drawn character studies because many of these people are people you wouldn't want to talk to or know or be friends with, but you do find themselves kind of understanding them and even feeling a little bit sympathetic for them. And I think that's the sign of a good writer where she can make someone comprehensible and relatable to you, even if there's nothing in your experiences that, that you have in common. Um, and I think that one of McHugh's strengths is she writes about working class people and folks who are on the economic edge in a way that a lot of sci-fi authors don't do it. Um, for example, if you read John Varley, um, he touches on, on a similar theme, but his people are almost always insanely resourceful and they happen to be, oh, I don't know, like motel clerks who are also rocket scientists in their spare time. And they have an uncle who's a survivalist, so they'll be fine no matter what. Or there'll be William Gibson where there's some eccentric Japanese billionaire who hands them an AI box and next thing you know, they're in a world of gilded privilege. And this is the exact opposite of that. And the only other author I can think of who does something similar is Nancy Kress, who who also talks about what it's like to be an extra on the world stage of history when these bright and shiny privileged people are doing things that do, that do end the world as we know it. So I, I think it's a really valuable contribution and I'm going to continue seeking out her work, but I'm going to have to make sure I'm in a really good mental place before I do. <laughs> because you won't be afterwards. Exactly. No. John, what do you think? You you uh, you don't read a lot of stuff because you're not a high-volume reader. This was short. Yeah, I like the fact that it was short. And I do read a lot of short story collections. And I usually have queued up mm-hmm. those uh, year's best fantasy and sci-fi uh, yeah. collections yeah. for Me many too. years past. Me too. I, you know, like mm-hmm. I haven't read them all, so I'll, I read, I'll read them from like 2001 if I have, you know, I'll just go back. Uh, and those collections have kind of spoiled me for collections like this because, A, those are by different authors. So if you don't like uh, one author or you want a different taste, uh, you know, the next story is going to be different. And, B, uh, I think the to, to get into those collections, usually they want you to have uh, either a, a really interesting premise, especially for the, the sci-fi ones, or a, a really tight little narrative. And these stories don't really have, the premises are not that interesting. Like they, none of these movies stand alone on their premises. And the narratives are definitely not beginning, middle, end, tight little short stories. Uh, there's a theme running through all of them and they're kind of like a uh, a picture that she wants to paint. But there's just, this is a sameness after a while of how eight or nine stories there are. I think you could have gotten away with like three of these and then had some other author do the other, you know, Six or seven. How many even are there in this thing? The, the uh... Lisa says ten. Special economics is actually in the year's best science fiction collection. I had read it before, and that that one actually seems to be so, sort of structurally the most like those kinds of stories. In that it's it's tighter. It's got the the bird flu apocalypse, but it's also about you know Chinese labor conditions, and and they've got the you know she gets a a fabbed phone, and so it's definitely in the in the mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. But you know, and the, they meet the guy who. Who yeah. wants to steal their mm-hmm. their bioelectronic box and all that? That that seemed like an interesting kind of slice of future extrapolation. That's much more like the kind of stories that I expect to see in those collections than some of these other pieces, which are much more kind of oblique and odd. Yeah, but but yes. what I'm looking for out of out of a short story collection, I want more likable characters or more interesting premises or more variety. So this kind of was like bleh to me. More of the same. Yeah. 
everybody dies. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that's, I, I, I sort of feel that way too, is that it's tough being used to having a kind of varied short story diet to have these be all variations on a theme. And I, I can definitely see they are very variations on a theme, but, uh, yeah, it didn't really do it for me. I'm glad. I'm glad it was short. It, certainly, they were. I didn't feel like I was struggling to read them, uh, but it didn't really. It didn't really thrill me. What I what I actually liked, you know, I, I will remember the naturalist because it is kind of an interesting idea of these the zombie prison. That's kind of a nice different kind of take on zombies. That we'll just throw the prisoners in with the zombies and see what happens. Um, and and after the apocalypse, the the reason I the last story, which appears only I believe in this collection, and is and the collection's name for it, um, the reason I wanted to use that as a segue is that it it um it seemed to me to almost be a a conscious um reference to the road by Cormac McCarthy, uh, in that because that, it does everything exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah, it's an inversion, right? So it's mu- it's it it's it's a mother and daughter instead of father and son. There's still an apocalypse, although it's not as as utterly apocalyptic as as in the McCarthy novel. Um, but uh, one of the things that I love, I mean, now, so the road, dark. I have, have all of you read the road. I have. No, I have. Scott, because I I I have no. All right, so Lisa has, so <laughs> I so, have, and, and John has. Um, the road. I, I, I'm okay with being spoiled on it, though. So feel free. Well, there's a, I mean, there's a road. And it's yes. the end of the world. It's bleak. And it's bleak. Yeah. So it's yeah. deep, deep dark. And, and I love it. I, I, it's one of the best books I've ever read. I, I, it, it is one of my favorites. It is super dark, but I'm okay with that. I, I feel like I actually have a problem with a lot of these apocalypse stories because I feel like they don't really – that they're, they're, they're fantasies, that they imagine a level of the society holding itself together and people being decent that I don't believe would actually be the case. I actually believe – it would be far more horrific than most of these, especially in movies and TV shows you see. Like The Walking Dead is a good example. It's like The Walking Dead uh, is too gentle, I think. It's too easy. It would be much more brutal and horrible, um, and they probably don't want to show that. So The Road, father and son, just like mother and daughter in that last story, the big difference is it, The Road, despite all of its bleakness, it's about a, it's about a parent's love for their child, mm-hmm. un- unconditional love and wanting to protect their child. That's what it's about. It, 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 uh, that's why I find it so moving. Um, even with everything else taken out of the world, it, it's about that. After the apocalypse, the story is inverted not only because it's mother and daughter, but because it, the mother just uh, doesn't really – she's annoyed by her daughter and doesn't really uh, care and abandons her. <laughs> just, well, that's yeah, a, that's gonna, an even bleaker view than the I, road, though, because you're saying oh, that, yeah, that, it is. that yeah. Ed Brood were also selfish that, you know, well, this was this was a selfish woman you could tell before the apocalypse. She was not a great, you know, mm-hmm. she's like, oh, I aborted the first one, but the second one, you know, I'm stubborn and had it, but then you know, she's, this is... This I'll a, show you all. Yeah, this yeah. was a bad mother before the apocalypse, and after... What a surprise. She continues to be a bad person. I mean, yeah, it was amazing she was as uh, uh, stuck with her daughter for as long as she did. But when we meet her, yes. she's uh, complaining about her daughter. But you're right. So in that way, it is bleak. The horrible justification she makes where she's, well, I ran away from home for the first time when I was just yeah, older and I was thing. fine. And I'm, I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, you ran away in a stable country where you didn't have refugee camps and you're, you're abandoning this child to right. a stranger. You know, it was... Right. Whereas in the, in the road, you yeah. know, there is nothing. There is nothing left, and the only thing mm-hmm. there is that the father is taking care 
of of the son of his child even though it's completely mm-hmm. yes everything else is broken down completely like everything like photosynthesis has broken yeah. down there's <laughs> nothing and, and everything left. is dangerous and everybody's cold and miserable and it's just yeah yeah very different than this where it's like oh there might be a scary person in the house okay let's run away we're fine no yeah right I wanted to bring up the road because I think that that when I was reading the this collection, that was the the book that came back to me is, uh, I, I think a, a a great exploration of that end of the world feeling, and that um, if I had to pick a favorite on this topic, that would certainly be it. Not only, like I said, not only because yes, I am I find it really touching that in the midst of all this darkness, it really is about uh, a father. Uh, loving his son and Cormac McCarthy dedicates the book to his son. Um, but that it also, I thought was, um, a real, a really accurate, I don't know. Uh, it to me seemed believable portrayal of just how awful and miserable people would be put in a circumstance like that, that it's unflinching in saying people would do horrible things. They will kill each other. They will eat each other. They will farm each other. They will they will do anything to survive. And, you know, don't pretend that that it wouldn't come to that if it had to, which is really depressing. But I think it's true. He's also a much better writer, I think. I mean, but what he does yeah. in that book or the way his weird style that he has and how he's describing the situation. Yeah, no commas and very few. No, uh, no quote, quotation marks. Reading other stories that are that have that are a similar premise where people are like, on the road like this i mean that after the apocalypse they're traveling why are they traveling well what else are you going to do you got to go somewhere because you think everything's better canada. somewhere else everything's right? better in canada yeah and and you know they're just describing everything that goes on and the the discussions between a mother and a child Cormac mccarthy makes that look so easy where he, he doesn't even use quotation marks and it's it's uh, it's amazing the the uh, stuff that he gets across uh, in in that book in such a small amount of time that other authors will just ramble on and on trying to express what he expresses in like the exchange of seven unquoted things that we think might be said but possibly also thought uh that that was a real you know he's a great writer so that's that's a level above that's what i like when great writers take on a topic that is nerdy you know like the end of the world or something because you get the best of both worlds yeah Mm -hmm. yeah scott you read the road were you thoroughly depressed or I, I read the road immediately after I read After the Apocalypse. Oh. Uh, and I wow. was oh. further depressed. Um, I'm glad you're still with us. Come back to the light, Scott. <laughs> no, it's all going to be over. Um, no, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to compare anything to Cormac McCarthy because, as John said, he's such a brilliant writer uh, that I think any book about the apocalypse compared to the road will suffer greatly because he's a genius and very few people are. Um, and Maureen McHugh is a fine writer, but she is not as good a writer as he is. So he takes something that is a fairly cliche kind of premise, right? And he makes something that is beautiful and special and amazing. Um, where she takes some interesting premises and makes some interesting short stories. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just a whole different level of writing is going on. Right. So you like the road? I didn't realize that was a new read for you. So it it was because I I bought it many years ago and I read like twenty pages of it and I said this is way too depressing. <laughs> uh, and then I picked it up again when uh, after I read After the Apocalypse and I thought well maybe it gets better at the end. Uh, uh, it doesn't. No, no. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to spoil the ending for, for for Lisa, but I I would have if she wasn't on I would have discussed what you all thought of the ending and what 
was actually no going no on please um, I have no plans to read it um, all right because yeah, now this is this is horrible because this is one of the side effects of parenthood that no one warned me about which is that after you have your after I had my child I really can't handle child in peril stories I I can't handle stories where children lose their parents or parents lose their kids well, it's it, just this oh. I I read I read the road after I had kids and I I felt I understood it and appreciated it more because it spoke. Because I, I agree, there's a lot of cheap child in peril stuff that I, I can't take anymore. And actually, I hate it now because I, I know how cheap it is. And um, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel that way with The Road. The Road, to me, spoke of a feeling. I would get this feeling just walking around with my kids and there'd be somebody coming the other way and we'd be like on an overpass over a freeway. And I'd think, if this person tries to do something to me, I will kill them because I need to protect my children, right? Oh, yeah. So I've had that moment a few times where it's like, I will do anything to protect my children. And The Road, in a better way, I think, than any other piece of art I've ever seen, it speaks to that feeling, that that just final visceral feeling that I will do anything I can for my children. Now, at the end of The Road... Uh, the the father uh, the father finally succumbs to whatever terrible ailments and he gets hurt in the side he gets shot or pierced by an he was, he was gonna die something. from that lung ailment anyway he yeah so he, he dies was, he dies at the end he the father dies yeah and then but there's the man on the beach who, or whatever goes over to the sun and says you know come with us and so the, the question at the end of the book is is that guy on the up and up or is the sun going to be tomorrow's night's dinner Right, because they've got right. it's it's him and a woman and two kids, yeah. So that they, mm-hmm. you know, in theory, they're a family, but you, you know, and and y- he says, yeah. well, it, it goes far enough that he talks about how the woman talks a lot about God, and he doesn't really talk to God, but he he's going to ask if it's okay that he can talk to his dad, who's dead, but he's going to talk to him, and so you, there there is that. It, it is as hopeful an ending as you are ever going to get out of that book. Right? Well, but the, but the thing is, they had set up and all the things that had happened during the course of the book set you up to understand that things are not what they seem and that yeah. everything you think was normal is not. So when you're presented with this at the end, there's no way you you're put into the shoes of the kid and you're like, you know, don't believe it, kid. You haven't you been paying attention for the past 200 pages? You know, don't. That's exactly. But no, don't go. But then on the other hand, he's going to die on his own anyway if he stays right, by himself. Right. So he's just this poor kid out there, and he's forced to go. I always assume he's eaten. Well, that's the that's the happy <laughs> wow. That, that's so for me. I that that for me the end of that book is all about the lowered standards of the end of the world. That that's the happy ending at the end. Yeah, of the book. it's like well, that's, they're they're not eating me immediately. They, they right, these people <laughs> might protect me and not eat me, and but you but by knowing what you know about everything else that's happened you don't go in saying oh it's going to be fine you're like yeah, okay no way, kid, no way. watch yourself don't trust them maybe this will be okay maybe it won't maybe but at the them. same time it's like the best yeah yeah it's, sneak it's, up to the sneak up to the little one in the middle of the <laughs> night and hit him with a rock you know it's the best eaten. the best you could uh you can hope for is this chance you're fearing that too. That's another way they could have gone with that. Is that because the, the father is trying desperately to teach the son human values and to value right. human life? So we're not going to be fire like that, alive, right? But the kid is young, so it's like now that the father's influence isn't there, will he be able to maintain all the things that the father tried to impart on him over the course of the book right. in the face of the fact that he has to survive and has survival instincts? Besides which, there's the as you read it, you also realize that while it's you really care about the father and the son staying alive and the father protecting the son. It's very clear from the surroundings 
that um, this Everyone is, is not this is not a scenario that yeah. that is going to turn around. Right? It will be. It will just continue going downhill until the last person is dead. Right? But it does it's have that true. beautiful interlude in the middle, though, with the bomb shelter. That's, That's true. The warm, fuzzy center to this book is the bomb shelter thing, where you know it's going to end. It can't last forever, right? Yep. But for this little tiny brief period of time, there's that moment of normalcy that they live a whole life in, you know, however long they were there, a week. Right, right. Well, that's that's also dark, but it, but also beautiful, which is really what that book is. Is that That's kind of McCarthy also saying, you know, what's the point of life? It's that they get they get some time together and they're enjoying that thing. And, you know, everybody everybody gets born and everybody dies at the end. And in the middle, you hope, hopefully have a, a good life. And they mm-hmm. have the father and the son have that nice little moment where they find the kind of undiscovered shelter that's still got some food in it. But clearly the way the world is going is nobody's making it out alive. They're all just... Mm-hmm. hanging on until they are all dead <laughs> or eaten or eat well which well, of course make you die yeah. But. <laughs> yeah depending on how you're eaten they could keep you alive for a while and slice off bits and pieces so she doesn't even need That's to read true. the book she knows well, exactly. you, you that oh my the god thing. they do that of course they do oh yes oh, wow. <laughs> way, oh, way worse no. than that Oh Jesus! Oh, yeah. No, yes. Sorry. it's dark. It's it's, it's uh, not no, a feel good. No. Does it, so does anybody else have um, have favorite uh, or or I suppose hated examples of apocalyptic <laughs> stuff that you would like to talk about and bring and bring up here I, I while mean, we're on the I, subject yeah. of depressing things? I mentioned Nancy Cress earlier, and this is actually a theme that she comes to over and over again too, which is that humanity will eventually screw things up because some biotechnological experiment will go horribly awry and will be killed in a by, by genetically modified algae or or again somebody will will invent an airborne cancer that you can catch just by sneezing um and uh her, her stuff tends to come out with how people will deal with the realization that uh they're setting foot on the road as it were you know um one of the conceits seems to be that those of us who have experienced civilization will be taking it a lot harder than people who are born into lawless, degenerating anarchy, since uh, they will never know what they're missing. Um, but yeah, one of one of my classic ones is a pa- a pail of air by Fritz Leiber, which is when the Earth um, has a catastrophic astro- astrological event and the Earth's atmosphere is ripped away, and basically there's a small family that manages to survive only by virtue of Dad having been a, a, a climatologist and figuring out how to keep the family going. Um, but I, I tend to like the short stories, um, but I do agree with Jason that most of the time there's this, oh, here's a, here's a scientist hiding out and somehow keeping the flame of civilization going, whereas... Like him, I'll, I suspect that if, you, if an actual apocalyptic event were to occur, it if things would get oh, hideous really quickly, you know, we would we would all degenerate into lawless anarchy. Oh, yeah. So it wouldn't take very much, I think. No, this is the thing about The Walking Dead, the comic book versus the the TV show. Is in the TV show, everyone is still fairly clean, and they're saying please and thank you, and they're they're very very civilized. And the the further you get into the comic, like the worse it gets, and it actually reflects how people would probably act if if they were waking up every morning in a world that was out to kill them. Right. So, you know, that's that's the thing that I think not enough apocalyptic fiction really uh, brings home is the idea that that you are inexplicably left alive in a place that wants to kill you and you have that urge to keep going. And the question is, is what will you do? At what point do your actions to survive outweigh your value, you know, as a, as a living person? So, Scott, you have any favorite uh, apocalyptic uh, stories? Uh, well, I, I 
cannot remember the name of this book, uh, which is unfortunate. Or well, you'll fit right in. We can't <laughs> remember any names today. There you go. But it was it was written in the fifties, set after a nuclear war, where uh, and somehow these this group of people managed to uh, have a house, uh, find a house in like the Florida Keys, and they could, you know, they learned how to farm and all this stuff, and it was just kind of charted how they. Uh, held out and, you know, they had a radio and they were listening for transmissions. Uh, and at the end of the book, uh, a helicopter uh, with a, of a U.S. flag lands on it and, you know, uh, a, a guy comes out dressed in a uniform and the first thing the main character asks him is, did we win the war? <laughs> and uh, the, the American soldier says, yes, we did. But as I was reading this, I was like, nobody won this war if there was right. a, if there's a nuclear war, everybody loses. <laughs> So it's so. Didn't he see war 50s. games? Exactly. Nobody wins, man. But I can't 1950. remember. Nineteen fifty was. Wasn't that yet? Yeah, he didn't see that yet. Damn. It, it was a. If it only was, he had. <laughs> but it was a very pro-America book. And even what? after you can't you can't stop uh, us with your nuclear weapons. There'll be five guys in the Florida Keys who will laugh at you. Exactly. Ivan. <laughs> until, until the radiation cloud drifts over and kills them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the sequel. (laughs) It's much more depressing. Uh, uh, John, do you have any? I I was trying to think of the weirdest apocalypse short story that I read, and I I know the story, but I I don't know the title, the author, Ah, anything about it. And I actually, (laughs) I also searched for it extensively before the show and totally came up blank. But maybe, Jason, you've read it. Uh, It was a very short story, and it was in one of those collections, I think. It's a bunch of people who are in this old house, and it's snowing. And uh, at one point, someone goes out into the snow and then gets uh, ripped into bloody shreds and no one knows what it's about. And then so they retreat back into the house and like the radio, they're not getting radio signals anymore. And just snow is filling the entire planet up and they're all trapped in this house and people keep dying gory deaths. And it turns out that there's these weird invisible snow snake dragon monsters killing people and also having sex with them. This doesn't ring any bells to anybody. (laughs) Before or after he kills them. During usually. Uh, oh god! It is very, wow. it is very, very strange and confusing. First, you start to read it, and you're like, "Is this a horror story where there's a monster on the loose?" And second, you're like, "Is it science fiction because it's the end of the world and civilization is breaking down?" And I, I like the idea of people being trapped in a house. It was kind of one of those, you know, people going crazy trapped in one spot. The apocalypse via snow is very interesting to me, where it's just like, "Well, it's not stopping snowing." <laughs> you know what? What happens now? We're just going to be buried in snow and uh, strange, invisible uh, magic ghost sex dragon monsters uh so that was the most interesting <laughs> apocalyptic i've never seen a, if the snow won't get you the invisible sex yes. dragon monsters will yes uh, and i, I and tell, right. let me tell you that is not an easy story to google for yeah it's <laughs> not easy at all <laughs> so, uh but then for the more sort of uh mainstream stuff i'll just go back to my stephen king catalog and, and pick out uh, some favorites there so the long walk i always liked is a uh pretty simple premise apocalyptic short story and uh is that, has anyone read the long walk is that familiar to anyone no not even lisa wow the the premise is that uh it's one of these nonsensical oh, wait, uh contests sort of like the hunger games where they don't explain it or anything like that because it's a short story and a bunch oh, of people yeah a bunch of people oh. get together and you walk and when you stop walking they shoot you yes and the, la- the last story. one not shot wins <laughs> and I so love that story. that's not much <gasps> of a premise right but you know and it's it's like 
Yeah. No, because it's 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 this wonderful internal story, and it's 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 basically about um, people struggling against the constraints of both external society and the intrinsic biological limits that we all have to live with. Yeah. It's, it's a great story. A uh, great, and uh, I would say great for thirteen. And horrifying. And then the expanded version of that was the Running Man, which uh, was that the actual uh, Stephen King story. It's the one that became that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie with the guy from right. Family the Feud. Running Man. Yeah. Running is a, man. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, the short story was not quite as schlocky as that, but that's what the uh, the naturalist reminded me of. Because you've got zombies, and you've got to preserve, and you've got prisoners. You just need cameras and audience. <laughs> yeah. And uh, no, what's absolutely. his name? Uh, who's the Family Feud guy? Richard Dawson? Richard Dawson. Yeah, yeah. 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 who loves you and who do you love? So that's all I needed to add to the naturalist. Uh, so yeah, the, I, I I do like short stories for apocalyptic stuff because really it's like I don't I don't you don't need to explain how it happened I don't really know really know how it comes out just in the middle give me that part and so that works well for short stories. Well, I mean the, we we mentioned on the Stephen King podcast the last time the stand is really a, an apocalyptic. Yeah, that's a that's a beginning, oh, middle, and end thing. But you need a thousand pages to do that. And the beginning, I mean, I I really love the beginning of the stand because really before the 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 main plot of the story uh, goes into gear. He gets to spend some time destroying the world, basically. Yeah, and that's that's the good kind of apocalypse where you kill everybody because that's the key to the apocalypse. Is if you leave people around either alive or as zombies, then it's just bad, and they all kill each other, and bad things happen. If you kill pretty much everybody except for like except for like right, yeah, except for like a couple hundred or thousand people, then you got something. And especially if you know you didn't destroy everything, there's no radiation, there's no famine, there's no you know disease. It's like everyone alive is immune. That's pretty good. He he had the best premise for end of the world because you're like, hey, yeah, you know, no problem. Nothing's really broken. Everything's here. Why can't we live like a civil society? Oh, it's that you know. Well, the the guy changes into a raven. Maybe uh, put a right. damper on that. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's why. It's always something. I had two that I wanted to bring up. Um, oh, one Atlas Road. One is uh, you know one one is um, Earth by David Brin, which is not a great book. Oh, I love but, that book, though. Oh, but, my gosh. But it does feature my a very funny thing, which is the plot is basically some scientists create a black hole, and mm-hmm. oops, it drops into the center of the Earth and begins consuming oops. the Earth slowly. That'll do it. Uh, what you gonna do? It's science. <laughs> Fortunately, you've got a savage computer hacker on one side and a gay hypothesis-loving hippie on the other, and it all works out. And they, yeah, and, it, and it turns out the world doesn't end. But sounds um, like a wacky. They just, oh, I I just put that. the turtles into the black hole book. because but, then just and that's plot. not Brin's only. Have you ever read the Postman, Jason? It's, it's black holes all the way down, John. Uh, I have not read the Postman. Okay, that's his Ooh. really. That's his dark. Well, that, that is an apocalypse story. But I just I like yeah. the idea that that the movie that's as that, well. Seminal, uh, uh, oop, we, so we made a black hole. The good news, good news, figured out how to make a black hole. Bad news, gonna consume the earth. Sorry. We gotta go. Science. I gotta, it's like when worlds collide. It's like, I got a rocket, I'm leaving. Bye. See ya. Take care. Uh, the other, the other one I wanted to mention, I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast. It's, it's uh, the second book in a series by John Barnes. Um, the first book is A Million Open Doors, which I really loved. Um, which I actually like the, mm-hmm currently uh, reading that I, I like this whole series the, you gave me this series for my birthday one year i think i did uh yes. well the second book is really depressing mm. uh <laughs> it's called earth made of glass and oh, it, yes. it's about two um in, in this in this series um different cultures um current and uh, extinct actually cultures are seeded across all these habitable planets in 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 space so you have these various cultures and and this one planet has 
these two essentially incompatible cultures sharing it. Uh, mm. there, are, there are Tamils and there are uh, a reconstituted basically Mayan culture. Yeah. And they're at each other's throats. And the main characters in this in this series are basically like interstellar diplomats. The, the premise is really clever. The idea is that it used to be um, interstellar travel took hundreds of years, and so these all these cultures were essentially completely cut off, which is why they sort of built the built society the way they did, where they had these different cultures going going out to run on their own. Except uh, inconvenient, uh, somebody creates uh, a device that lets you step through a portal from one planet to another, and it causes huge culture clashes. And it's really an interesting idea. Anyway, Earth made of, made of glass. These diplomats come to try and tr- settle the dispute between these two cultures, and it doesn't go well. And <laughs> and and I, I think the I think the book is worth reading anyway. But I'm going to spoil it here, which is essentially at the end they all launch like their gamma gamma ray beams, and I they they it's unclear, but the diplomats who escape right at the very end. Um, it, believe that nobody is left alive and if there is anybody left alive there are very few people left alive these two goodbye, cultures goodbye lion culture goodbye tamil yeah, culture they, they kill each other they they mm-hmm. they they refuse to um it's brinkmanship right they they hate each other they refuse to negotiate with each other you can draw the parallels with all sorts of different examples on modern day planet earth and in the end they kill each other because there is nothing they will not live with each other so instead they die together and it's so depressing and yet brilliant i thought it was really great that he went there mm-hmm. that you spend this entire book with these diplomats trying to stave off annihilation of this planet and uh they fail <laughs> yeah it happens. anyway so earth made of glass uh, i recommend it if you like it if you like it dark and that's oh. a good series that john barnes yeah i gotta read that I found cultures. the uh, the name of the book that I was describing is Alas, Alas Babylon. I, I was going to uh, guess that, and I, I because I read that book when I and you when you were describing, I'm like, geez, this sounds familiar to me. I wonder if it's Alas Babylon. I'm like, I only think that because that's like the only book I read in school that I can remember. <laughs> but it actually is. <laughs> it is, in fact. You were right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We could read that in like middle school or something, and I had to read that in class. Oh, interesting. And the America won. Yeah. Is, I see. I, I was going to say that sounds a little bit like on the beach. Yeah, I have to read is, that one too. Which mm-hmm. is a post-apocalyptic Australian post-apocalyptic nukes. Yeah. All about the nukes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Australia, all about the beaches. Even after an apocalypse, <laughs> there's still a beach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why not? Yep. And the other uh, Wikipedia is also reminding me probably of my favorite apocalyptic story, which I completely forgot. Uh, Nightfall by Isaac Asimov. Oh, that's. That's funny because that's like astronomical apocalypse, right? It is. Yeah, we are in 2012. That's a good old fashioned Mayan calendar apocalypse, right? It's it's true. Yeah, they're on this planet that is always uh, illuminated, except when uh, so it has like three suns or something, and every five thousand years or something, they they all eclipse at the same time, and uh, when it happens, everybody goes crazy. Everybody goes crazy. Except for the the astronomers who are locked in the uh, observatory, and uh, you know, by the end, you assume they are dead. And it was turned into a novel, which was less successful. But any other ends, any other worlds, we should end. <laughs> uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is really about the end oh, of the world in the true. first twenty pages. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sherry Sherry Tepper's novel, The Gate to Women's Country, is a post apocalyptic novel um, where uh, it picks up presumably. Believe it or not, radical feminists are responsible for the resurgence of civilization, and it's a good. It's 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 not 
of science fiction and the radical feminist tradition of the 1970s. Rather, what she does is she examines the kind of societies that are likely to come up if you do have a group of women survivalists who get together and decide these are the rules of our new society going forth. And it presents a pretty balanced view of, of both the pros and the cons and um, deals pretty realistically with the, with the climate issues, you know, what it would be like to have to live um, in, in a world that's effectively enduring nuclear winter. Um, it's, it's, and it's one of, Tepper can be a hard one to get into because as, as she's gotten deeper into her writing career, like she's really begun to, to flail on her two hobby horses big time and her two big, uh, thematic cause celeb, um, are, are restrict repressive gender roles in society, both male and female and environmental, uh, depredation. But, but here it's, it's a really light touch and it's a nice little story. And it's the kind of thing you could probably give to a high school class and it would make them think. And it's, 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 it's a very gentle post-apocalyptic book, if that makes sense. In the 70s, um, mm-hmm. when the, there were successful disaster movies on uh, – uh, disaster movies like The Towering Inferno and, mm-hmm. and uh, An Airport, um, there were some science fiction disaster books. I, I, most notably, I'm thinking of um, Lucifer's Hammer by Jerry Purnell and Larry Niven, mm-hmm. which is about a, a comet smacking into the earth. Um, but they also did, and then they did footfall, which is very much Lucifer's hammer, except what if the comet was pushed by aliens? (gasps) Uh, but I enjoyed both those books just in the sense, like I enjoyed the beginning of the stand where it's kind of fun to see the authors portraying just a complete devastation of, of, of society. Yeah. Um, but in a fantasy sort of way. So it's not as, as depressing as something like The Road, which might be a little more realistic. And then the, I wanted to mention Why the Last Man, the comic, which we did a podcast oh, about, yes. which is about sort of half an apocalypse because all the men die except That's for one. one. But none of the women die. But society is then has to deal with the fact that there are, that the half the population is gone and, um, and uh, that's actually handled. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. In that, yeah. it's, and it's, it's it's the half of the population that actually managed uh, transit infrastructure. So and and, and, <laughs> well, right. and large scale and large scale agriculture. The, so the, the sexism of society is is amusingly inferred, right, by the mm-hmm. fact that all these jobs have to be picked up because what what you know what where were the women in positions of power and yeah. where were they not involved? Uh, so so you. Uh, as you as you figure out how they deal with it, you you uh, you get to infer from that just how sexist the, our society is now. Yeah. Uh, and you find out why Israel and Australia are going to end up ruling the seas yes. when, when the event happens. When, yes, when the inevitable <laughs> why the last man apocalypse. It's going to happen. Happens. Well, I'll miss you guys. No. <laughs> Only Scott will, That's will right. remain alive. My, in my middle name is why. Yeah. <laughs> Reading these books did make me. Um, not want to survive an apocalypse. I don't know why people continue. If if that if if the road apocalypse thing happens, dream, right? I'm not no. I'm not I'm not going out there and trying to survive for years uh, in yeah. the apocalypse. I'm going to want to die quickly. No, I think at Comic Con last year they asked Robert Kirkman what he would do uh-huh. if the Walking Dead zombie apocalypse really happened, and he said he'd hang himself. Yeah. He said, yeah. I'm not interested in living in that world. That, <laughs> that's about it. right. I grew, I I grew up in myself. Tidewater, Virginia, which is the home to Fort Eustis, um, an army base that handles logistics. And it's also home to the Norfolk Naval Base and Langley Air Force Base. And this is back in the 1980s when we were all terribly, terribly worried about nuclear weapons. 
And we're talking about it over dinner one night. And I asked my dad, you know, is it possible that that and dad, my dad says cheerfully, honey, we're one of the first areas to be attacked. And I said, well, could we get, I said, could we get in the car and go to the mountains? Then he goes, no, we're going to get lawn chairs and we're going to sit out and watch the bombs fall because you don't want to live through the aftermath. Let's go out in a big blaze of glory. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the world, and that was the worldview that my parents encouraged growing up, which is if there's going to be an apocalypse type event, just, just, just go in the first wave. There's, there's no point in in living through it. (laughs) So when Morgan Freeman comes on your TV. And says, we're going to be hit by a comet, but we've got a system of caves to protect us. Don't go to the caves. I go. I get my surfboard and I go hang out on a balcony and wait for the tidal wave to come in. Yeah. And I got hanging 10. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys can all die, but I'm going to survive. John will survive. <laughs> yeah. All right. Because, like, see, that, that's the problem with these movies. Unless it's a comet. If it's an astronomical event, then, yeah. Then you just, I mean, doesn't really matter where you are. Like, the whole Earth's toast, the atmosphere gets blown off. Fine. But anything man-made, even nuclear war, it's a big planet, you know? Like, it's probably not going to be you that's there, but there's going to be somebody, like, in the Himalayas who's been living there his whole life or, you know, who knows where, in some jungle somewhere. It's a very, very, very big planet. And we always think about, oh, it's the end of the world, when really most of the stories are like, well, it's the end of the population centers of the United States, really. But some dude in North Dakota with no TV and no radio won't notice for, like, seven years, probably. You know what I mean? It's a big, big planet. Big planet. I was also watching, oddly enough, Doomsday Preppers, which is a new show that deals with. <laughs> I started with... <laughs> watching that. That is that is just seriously. That is just addictive. Yeah. Making up it, these show titles now. No, 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 no. I cereal bowl fillers next. <laughs> I, no, that's that's. I have a piece that I'm working on for TV about how Doomsday Preppers. They're basically just like purpose driven hoarders. They're hor- yeah, they're it's, hoarders. They are hoarders. We, they're purpose driven hoarders, so though. It's, I have it's, an it's, I have yeah. an admission, which is we had in uh one in one of our um barns on the property that I grew up on out in the countryside we had um rations my father purchased <laughs> ra- end of the world rations so that again we would survive and be miserable instead of just dying <laughs> for, for one but week together you would no no <laughs> no it was like it was like fallout shelter yeah so for, so for how many weeks did mm-hmm. you do the math and say assuming all this food is good and it's edible and we, i was you know i was pretty young i imagine that they would have just you know ro- roast slow roasted me or something you know i would have just been supplemental protein at yeah, that so point. that's why the key of the apocalypse is everybody else has to die because that clears yeah. the roads or not clears the roads literally but figuratively clears the way for you to then travel to some place that's more hospitable that you know you're not fighting for supplies with people you know spoken yeah. like a man who has his action plan in place That's for right. the apocalypse you, you've got your bug out plan yeah. step one everybody but me and like 10 other people dies step two <laughs> party time do you get do you get to pick the ten other people though? That's the question. That is that actually that's one of my favorite things about apocalyptic stories is when the apocalypse is complete, like John says, and there's almost nobody left. That's actually great because then you have the scenes where people just walk through the streets and that's true. And and they've got mm-hmm. their choice of they're like wearing big jewelry everywhere. Uh, the whole planet is yours. And when I was that. a little girl, when I was a little girl, I used to I used to fantasize about living in the Smithsonian. I was going to survive the apocalypse <laughs> and go move into the Smithsonian. So that way I could spend all day with the dinosaurs and hang out with a NASA capsule. People don't need to kill each other if there are only 15 of you and you've got the resources of all of the world. Spread out. Spread out. Everyone gets a continent. (laughs) It's beautiful. And not even just like the man-made stuff. There's beautiful places that you wouldn't normally get to see that, you know, as long as you've got your your needs provided for you, which you would easily for Mm -hmm. life just from the stuff that's laying around. You could you could set yourself up in Yosemite and have the best view in the world. Every year you could go to a different continent. It's the whole planet is yours. 
Well, how do you get to the other continents? Yeah. <laughs> you walk. Who cares? You know, it's take what? your time. <laughs> and the answer is you would uh, you teach yourself to fly. Ah, uh, well, there you go. Go to France. <laughs> and, and and you go to France, right? Exactly. <laughs> Going to France, as they say. Oh, you know what I mean. But that, that reminds me of the the wonderful Twilight Zone episode where you know uh, everybody dies, oh, so the guy finally has enough time to read enough, at last. Yeah, yes. and then his glasses. And he break. breaks his glasses. Yeah, my my dad used to tell me that one as a cautionary tale when I was growing up. It's true. Mm. Always have a backup pair of glasses. That's what we learned. Yes. Yeah, but if everybody's again, yeah, he could have scoured dead, the earth for his prescription. Just, yeah, he, he couldn't can just see go down to the optometrist. Oh, uh, yeah. he could see well enough to find the optometrist and go through their lenses one by one. That that's the story they don't tell you is that Burgess <laughs> Meredith gets up off his knees, wanders down the street to the optometrist, finds a monocle, and is he is a happy man with a monocle reading for the rest of his life. They don't tell you that story. The monocle, the man with the monocle, happy monocle man. It's a happy apocalypse. Yay! Yay. Continents for everyone. And everybody has their own continent. This is great. I, I'm feeling cheered up now. I'm so glad that we had this uh, edition of the Incomparable Book Club where we talked about the end of the world and, and made it made it a positive. It's just like John Syracuse to turn my frown upside down. That's right. Thank you for that. And you you will survive. We will all be Woo-hoo. dead at your hand, but you, you will see, survive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes John can harness his hatred of everything for good. Well, you can have my stuff. How about that? I will. Yeah. He will. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I will. I don't even it. need your permission. You're not going to be here. <laughs> well, there, there are plenty of canned goods in my apartment, so. Oh, my God. If you turn into zombies, <laughs> I'm going to have to move to North Dakota, so right. I won't see But any. will we look up? Oh. You'll have to do Ooh. some experimentation on us to find out. All right. I'm going to close up the Incomparable Book Club for this time. Before we go, we're going to... Uh, uh, have a new edition of the book club coming up and we are it's very unlike us we've actually planned ahead the next topic for the incomparable book club we're calling it it's magic <gasps> can you feel the magic we're gonna we're gonna read the night circus by aaron morgan morgenstern i think yes e morgenstern not s morgenstern that's the princess bride uh, the night circus by aaron morgenstern um the magicians by lev grossman uh, is also on the agenda. That's a magic book. And we, we may talk about, although it's really large, and if you don't have time to read it, that's okay, but we'll probably talk about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, which is oh. another magic yes. kind of book. I felt that these books all sort of seemed interrelated, and so I thought we would talk about them in, in bulk to save ah. time. Um, and uh, I, I think they're all good in their own way, and they're all very interesting. So we're going to – that'll be in three or four weeks. We'll talk about magic and the night circus, the magicians, and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, and perhaps other magical books too. But until then, I would like to thank this week's book club participants, Lisa Schmeiser. Thank you, as always, for being here and uh, being part of our end-of-the-world uh, conversation. Well, wherever the end of the world is, there I am. Are you, Yes. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> I may skip it. Uh, Scott McNulty, thank you for uh, for participating in this apocalypse. Uh, I feel fine. That's good. I was waiting. Somebody uh-huh. had to do it. Whoever had Scott in the REM uh, reference pick, you, yes. you win. Uh, I had Scott. I win. Yay. Woo. And and John Syracuse, thank you for participating. And we, you will survive. I'll save a spot in the top of the Empire State Building for you, Jason. I'll I'll come there. I'll walk there from the Himalayas. Yep. <laughs> Plenty of time. Take your time. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> Plenty of time and lots of reading. That's right. I can do along the way with my monocle. Pack your monocle. I will. I will. Oh, if I forgot my monocle, then wouldn't that be sad? It would be. I have to walk back. Oh, that would be. That was the first draft of that Twilight Zone episode. He loses his monocle. No. <laughs> yeah. All right. Until next time, unless the world ends in the meantime, I suppose. Uh, for the incomparable, I'm Jason Snell. Thanks for listening. Bye.